right, welcome to the Wildlife Experience. Uh, this evening, I'll be talking to my friend, Kenzie. Kenzie, thanks for being here. Thank you. <laughs> I'm excited. All right, so how these always start out is uh, we let you start by telling us about yourself. So you can start from childhood or college or anywhere in between, um, just wherever you want to lead it, lead it off with. Awesome. Let's see how, how far back I feel like going to <laughs> Well, my name is Kinsey Cherniak. Um, it's nice to meet all of you guys. It's no one I'm meeting, but you're hearing my voice, so I feel like I'm meeting you. Um, I am, oh, I don't even know how many generations, fourth or fifth generation Texan, been in Texas my whole life, born and raised in Austin, um, grew up going to Longview in East Texas for Easter, Thanksgiving. Um, I would go to summer camp out in Wimberley. So all the, the Texas ecosystems I'm pretty familiar with because that's where I spent my childhood. And then I was a cheerleader all throughout, gosh, middle school, high school, and then decided that I wanted to cheer in college as well. And that kind of affected my college decision a little bit because I wanted to go to a school with a good football team so I could yep. cheer in college. Um, and I really could not bring myself to leave the lovely Lone Star State. So I went <laughs> up a little ways to Fort Worth. Um, and that's where I ended up for my college years. I went to TCU and I had a great time there. I loved it. Um, I initially went into TCU wanting to major in biochemistry. So nothing to do with environmental science. I really never really knew I was into environmental science. Although growing up, my uncle was an environmental science teacher in Seattle. He taught AP environmental science. So it's kind of in my blood, I guess. Um, but yeah, I took a environmental science class my second semester of freshman year. Once I really started hating all the chemistry and the biology classes I was in as a freshman. Um, and I was like, where has this been all my life? And I switched to environmental science because I had a couple of really good friends, um, that encouraged me and said, yeah, you can do this. You can get paid and yeah enjoy what you're doing and be with animals. I really wanted to be a dentist, um, but I decided that people are less cool than animals. Yeah, my freshman year environmental science teacher, intro environmental science, she had a prehensile tailed a blue tongued skink as a class pet that she had rescued. Um, and so that was kind of my first species that I really fell in love with. Um, yes and got me into environmental science because she would bring it into class and it would sit on my shoulder and crawl up onto my head. <laughs> her name was Pedro and I loved her so much. And so just having the animal experience kind of lessened my anxiety about school a lot and made me a yeah. lot more comfortable about learning. Um, and so I just really loved it. I thought yeah. it was really cool. We read all the stuff like civil action and silent spring. And I just got really into I'm very yeah. ashamed. I still haven't read that. <laughs> I need to. You should. Yeah, it's good. I would probably recommend doing an audiobook, to be honest, yeah. like while you're driving, because it can get a yeah. little deep in parts. Yeah. It can get a little <laughs> bit, um, yeah, it can get a little hairy yeah. in some parts, but it's it's fun. It's entertaining. Well, for me, because I'm yeah. an environmental science nerd. <laughs> I feel like most people would be like, no, that's not fun. Yeah. But, and you did, um, at TCU, you did some, you got some undergraduate research experience. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I started in Dr. Victoria Bennett's research lab as a sophomore. Um, 
actually second semester of freshman year, my, that teacher that I had for environmental science introduced me to her. And so we studied the flight patterns of Texas bats. We have a lovely little flight facility on TCU's campus, kind of tucked away. It's really nice. Um, and we ended up doing, I think it was LIDAR. I'm not sure. We scanned the whole inside of it. So we Sounds knew right. like, Sounds right. where everything was. I was really wasn't into the tech things. Yeah. <laughs> More of the feeding bats and, and catching bats and all of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we would study evening bats. We got the occasional Eastern red bat um, and Mexican free-tailed bat as well. But we would do mist netting and catch them um, and release them in our flight facility and keep them for about a week or so um, and just watch their flight patterns. Um, and then we would, as it kind of progressed in my college career, we would um, put little transmitters on them, which yeah. bats are very small and transmitters are not very small. So they're kind of yeah. hard kind of, to put transmitters on. Yeah. Um, so we did research on that as well, like trying to see how to best attach a transmitter to a bat, which was kind yeah. of a funny overlap with my cheerleading career because we found out that eyelash glue <laughs> works really well. <laughs> I was like, let's try this. Yeah. So that was, that was fun. Everybody's uh, unique background comes in handy. Know. You know, we all have to come from a different background and different experiences and came in handy in that moment. Yeah. So if you've ever um, really needed to glue a transmitter onto an animal, eyelash glue works pretty well on the skin. There's like a certain kind I'm yep. not going to go into it because you won't care, but it was like a certain <laughs> really? brand yeah, that I, I don't found care about the brand that much. well for me. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to try this on the bat. And it worked so well. So it was funny. So you started um, doing that your sophomore year, the bat stuff? Uh, yeah. So then, I initially started like second semester of my freshman year and we would do um, telemetry yep. um, and transects and things like that. So we would do telemetry, radio telemetry and kind of track the area of the bats, but to be honest, that was a little bit too active for me. I really <laughs> enjoyed sitting in the flight room, yeah. being in the flight facility and not having to just run around tracking something down. That was kind of stressful to me. Um, but I really liked, you know, recording data just in the flight room. It was a lot more chill for me. Were, um, were you uh, skeptical of bats prior to this experience? A lot of people don't know how to feel about bats. I think they're just like, these disease-ridden, like, blood-sucking monsters. And, you know, they have a, yeah. just a bad image. They haven't been treated very well. I think being from Austin, Texas, you that can't yeah. bat. Honestly, I think I have the background from being from Austin where they're just so loved here. Yep. I never really had. And also, I, I grew up with parents who taught me to be very curious and not fearful of wildlife. Mm -hmm. Cautious, but not fearful. Yeah. Um, and I... I really don't think I've ever had like a fear necessarily of, of an animal. I've had definitely some, some strong caution, like, you know, nice. this with <laughs> reptiles like and things, I don't want to grab them. We got to change, change that. <laughs> I mainly don't want to hurt them. I don't want to disturb I'm them. Gonna, well, I mean, if fair enough. Fair and enough. Me up, I would not be happy about fair, it. Fair. They, snakes are, um, you know, they're, they're tough, but yeah, they're fragile too. So. Yeah. Fair no, enough. I don't think bats I ever really had. I had the, the education. I took my, you know, mimology courses and things. So this is my small soapbox to educate people who might be afraid of bats. Yeah. AKA you, because you always think <laughs> <laughs> bats. vampire bats, they don't exist here. And also yeah. they don't suck your blood either. So 
if you're camping and you're laying on the ground in a place where vampires are prevalent, maybe you should worry a little bit. Where is that? Do you know? South America? I don't know off the top of my head, like where their whole, because that wasn't a species. I think it's South, think it's South America. I think it's I think South America. Could be wrong. But no. they basically, they take They're their somewhere. little and they just run it very like lightly across your skin. And then the blood like kind of starts to trickle out and they just lick they it up. It, and it, lap it up. Very cute, actually. I'm like, I'm okay no, with that. Cute, I think might be. And as long as you're camping, just like be a little bit elevated and then you're fine. Because they yep. can't fly. They just they, they... fall along the ground. I've seen, um, I guess, a picture of a vampire bat on some sort of mammal at night. And it, it looks pretty horrifying. When they crawl, it was a video. It was crawling on like a cow or something. Oh, pretty yeah. It's pretty, it's, it's Cows pretty are like, they go for the ankles, man. It's, it's yeah. I think they're When you look at it, you can't help but get the heebie-jeebies. But it's also fascinating at the same time. So I had to get my rabies, um, like pre-rabies vaccination of titers or whatever to do my vaccine. That yeah. And I have been like, when you hold them in your hand, they kind of will bite your fingers sometimes and you're trying to feed them because they get scared. They have the tiniest little teeth in the world. And I don't think we've ever had a rabid bat, yeah. but you just have to do it for precautions, you know, but I've had the titers so much and I've had, like, I've been bit so many times that I think I'm technically immune now oh, so well. if I go in and I get tested to see if I still need the titer I don't anymore <laughs> because yeah. I've had it so many times so if anything yeah. finds anything rabid call me you know I'll take care of it <laughs> not want to get bitten by a bat that would freak me out I think they're cool you barely feel it their just... teeth are so small I, it doesn't even break the skin really that's yeah. what I say about snakes so yeah that's it's all well, about I've seen you grab a snake and it makes you <laughs> so I know those break the skin. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's especially cats. Their teeth are tiny. So, so teeny. It's like smaller than a grain of rice. It doesn't even like break the skin. So small. Very cute though. And I wear gloves. I don't do yeah, very right. ever. I have I have these nice little baseball gloves and like on the pad of your hand, it's like a shock absorber. Yeah. They really like to sit in it because it's like a little cushion for them. <laughs> so in the baseball gloves, they, they really like that when you hold yeah. them that way. I know a lot of people that do bat work. Some of them prefer not to wear gloves and some of them prefer to wear like latex gloves or like the little finger yeah. condoms so they don't get um like mealworm guts on them. But yeah, I yeah. Just think I'm like, I want to wear baseball gloves because it's it provides a little bit more comfort for yeah. this one. Yeah. But that's just me. So I have a question about bats. I understand Texas has technically the largest mammal migration in the world, and it's the bats coming out of Bracken? Bracken Cave, yeah. By numbers, it's the largest uh, mammal migration in the world, right? Mm -hmm. That's yeah, pretty phenomenal. Yeah, it's insane. It's insane. Texas bats are truly phenomenal. We have, yeah. we have a really diverse amount, of, like a yeah. diverse amount of species, and we also have so many in just one little area in Bracken Cave. It's like, you really can do so much research there. I don't, I'm not sure. I know at TCU, we didn't do it there. Um, yeah. and I'm sure that people are researching it, but yeah. I think that I've had, I don't even remember who told me this, but I've had friends. I don't think it was you. I think it was somebody, but somebody told me that their hypothesis about white nose syndrome. Okay. Yeah. Were you telling me about this? No, but I was going to bring white nose syndrome up because that's a you know relevant topic here, obviously. 
I feel bad. Whoever told me about this, if you're listening, please, <laughs> please DM me or something yeah. because I forgot who told me this. But this area is a little bit too hot or something, like to where the fungus doesn't really stay. That's good. We don't have, because white nose syndrome is a lot more prevalent up north. Oh. But oh my gosh, it's going to bug me that I can't remember who's telling me this. I feel bad I'm not giving them credit because it's a really like, profound thought I think but whenever they migrate we'll come down here and it's kind of like a detox spa almost because they come and the caves are like a little bit warmer down here if they they have white nose it's gone by the time they leave um I think maybe it was Andy Glusenkamp that was telling me this oh the the San Antonio San Antonio Zoo wonderful you met him at the summit yeah yeah, well, well, we're going to get to the summit and text my nature later. We're still on bats. Um, yeah. So, we, so, so white nose syndrome, it, it's a major threat to bats around mm-hmm. the world. Or, or is it just North America? Maybe it's just North America. I don't know. Yeah, so it's a fungus yeah, um, yeah. that is prevalent, and it'll come out whenever they're all hibernating in one place, and they're really yeah, all yeah. close together in a cave. And they can't really tell it's, it's kind of hard to track it because sometimes it's there. Sometimes it's not, sometimes they're affected, sometimes they're not. Um, so that's one of the really big things in bat research right now is white nose syndrome. I personally have never seen a bat with white nose syndrome. And that I feel like kind of lines up with the hypothesis of my friend. The warmer it is, the. Yeah. That it kind of kills it. I think that's kind of the same thing with, um, snake fungal disease. Mm Mm-hmm. It's uh, a fungus that affects snakes, but I think it's worse the further north you go. Like generally, it's kind of the probably a similar I think thing. I think it's opposite because you would think I know with like chytrid fungus, chytrid is that how you say chytrid, it? Yeah, chytrid. Yeah, yes. in frogs, it's worse whenever it's warmer. And, and, yeah, it's like it's like yeah. a. I guess it's definitely like a like equatorial like mm-hmm. zone problem. It seems. It's funny to me that it's swapped for white nose and for yeah. snake fungus. Yeah. I actually don't know much about chytrid fungus. I'll have to get somebody on to talk about that. Yeah. I know it's a major problem for frogs, but. It's interesting. I don't know. Uh, it, but... White nose, do you know if white nose syndrome is uh, anthropogenic origin, like human caused? I don't think sorts, so. Or is it anything environmentally? So. Yeah. Okay. I think it's just one of those things that happened in a cave and hey. then it just kind of spread. Maybe and then it was actually one of my favorite things ever. If I ever post about bats on Instagram, every single time I have somebody that comes into my DMs and says, but bats spread disease. And I would just like to take a moment to say, bats do not spread disease, people spread disease. disease. It is people, it is not bats. Yeah. (laughs) I was gonna say something really important. Oh, uh, you know, climate change is something we often talk about, right? These days um, Mm -hmm. has a lot of, negative implications but a possible positive is stuff like white nose syndrome if it's if that fungus doesn't do well in a warm area if uh if a warming climate happens you know more and more maybe mm-hmm. that'll, that'll help pass. yeah i mean i feel like nature does such a good job of kind of settling itself out yeah i know it can't always yeah, there isn't yeah. The, the, the human impact on on the planet is yeah pretty. But I feel like in situations like that, it's kind of yeah, they, you know it work itself of, out, kind of healing itself. Nature is healing. But yeah. yeah, I think that's yeah. really cool. Yeah, that's neat. 
other other bat facts what are we missing here i have a fun bat story i had a bat in my house one time what kind of bat was it do you know this was, i'm just assuming it was a brazilian or mexican free-tailed brazilian free-tailed bat whatever yeah it was there was a whole colony right yeah, yeah colony so the house I lived in in high school, it was built by my grandfather, like just him, like built it all by himself, went through like multiple hurricanes. Um, he had to like keep repairing it. Anyway, there's like a hole in like, so they got in like the rafters, I guess, like the top under the roof. And there was over a hundred, I counted them one evening, living in our house. I love the noise that they made. parents, their room was upstairs. Uh, it was just like it was a, it was a two-story house but like just yeah. the upstairs was like one bedroom and me and my dad were like watching tv watching like dual survival or something on animal on discovery yeah. and my mom screamed like like she was dying and like my mom has this scream she's, she's listening <laughs> she's gonna smile because when she screams it like it's so alarming to me I feel like like these, these primal instincts kick in and me and my That's dad like run up there scream. and there's a little bat just floating flying around in the house upstairs <laughs> i don't even know we never found it it got away really you should have put up bat boxes that's we, the only uh, real people this is another topic actually i'll oh, like bat boxes. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the end of the story it turned out my grandpa who lived next door he closed the hole off i can't remember surely he did it when they were out because we did like you would have closed them in and they died in there that would be bad and Honestly, though, I wish we would have just left them there. Like, if you have a bat colony living in your house, you're lucky. I think, I think it's really cool because they're very selective about where they live, to be maybe honest. Not flying in your house, but <laughs> they're living on your house. Pets, maybe not, but <laughs> I think it would be cool. If I saw a bat in my house, I would be so excited. Would but you, no, a lot of people, be really, I would be so pumped. I haven't seen a bat in a really long time, like since I was in college, and I'm so happy because every time I go South Congress Bridge, I don't see them. They don't come out for me. One time, and I saw I saw them. I know they don't come out for me, and I always look in my neighborhood and stuff. Um, Can you go under there and see them during the daytime? Um, too too high. Not really. You can kind of hear them sometimes, and a little bit morbid, but sometimes there are dead ones underneath. Oh yeah, yeah. That's there's um, like how many bats at the Congress Congress colony? I have I don't like, know numbers. There's like over like it's like a million five hundred thousand something like that. A lot. Like there's yeah. a lot. Maybe not a million. I don't know. Maybe a million. When you're talking about bat numbers. I wouldn't be surprised, but I do know that it is. Um, oh, there's a name for this, and I forget what it's called. But it's like the mothers and babies. That's the the uh, type of. Oh, it's a uh, uh, maternal roost. Maybe that might be what it's called. I think that I makes sense. That sounds about right. That sounds good. Um, right? Yeah. So it's moms and babies in that roost that's under the that are that's under the bridge. So. I got you. Always a bunch of baby bats, which is very cute. Houston has a similar scenario, but it's only like a couple hundred thousand, I think. Mm -hmm. But you can actually, it's the Wabridge colony, mm -hmm. um, kind of by downtown. And you can actually go under there. There's a like a trail under it, and you can see them in the cracks in the concrete. Yeah, <laughs> there's a trail under it, like Ladybird Trail. Yeah. But the last time I was under it, I didn't see them. But let me be honest, it's probably just me because they hide from me. I'm telling you, <laughs> I can never find them. Nope, I, can, no I feel like. I see bats when I'm in other countries. Yeah. Murcielagos. That's what bats is in, in Spanish. That's my favorite Spanish. Wait, wait, say, say that again. Murcielagos. Oh, shit. I can't say that. I'm, I'm like bats. way more Latino yeah. than you, and I can't speak any Spanish. Yeah, that's my favorite <laughs> word. So I see them when I'm in Costa Rica all the time. I can see them roosting. Like, I always see them roosting. 
And whenever I'm here, for some reason, I just don't see them. I don't know what the deal is. It's rude. What do you think about the, <laughs> the fruit bats, the flying foxes? Oh, I love them. Oh my God, I've they're never cute. seen one and I want to. They're so, I think they're in Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're so Yeah, cute. flying foxes are in Australia. When it gets windy, man, they have trouble because they've got these giant, huge wings that are <laughs> so like thin and they get stuck on barbed wire and stuff all the time. Yeah. They're very I think cute. the unfortunate thing about bats... I think they would be very popular among naturalists if you could like see them and photograph them. You can. It's so hard though. Like it's so hard. You, can't, you just have to know where they're roosting. That's the, that's the problem. Like, yeah. If you were to go to Bracken Honestly, Key, you could probably, see them and photograph them. It's probably a good thing that most people don't go searching for their roosts because yeah. you don't want to disturb them. Yeah. yeah. They're they're not nocturnal actually. They're crepuscular. Do you know crepuscular. what that means? Crepuscular. Yeah. That's uh yeah, you can say it. Oh, I get to be the educator? Sweet. Yeah. So crepuscular yeah. means that you come out at dawn and dusk. Yeah. So nocturnal, like the typical nocturnal idea, it doesn't really exist. There's nothing that's truly nocturnal. There's nothing yeah. that's truly only awake during the nighttime and sleeps all day. Everything's crepuscular. So it comes out at dusk and then it sleeps during the night also. Yeah. And dawn. It comes out that's at dawn. A, crepuscular is a very important term for herpers because... A lot of herps, like when, when we go out looking for herps in the summer or late spring, when it, like the warmer months, there's mm-hmm. a, always a big push of snakes right when the sun goes down, you know, right right at uh, dusk. Um, and same thing, you know, some snakes will move in the morning too, at dawn. But so that, that's why I know crepuscular because it's, it's yeah. very relevant to looking for herps, looking for snakes, stuff yeah. like that. You need to have like a glossary for this podcast. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Going into our terminology, yeah. you guys are going to learn. Get your flashcards out. <laughs> so, was there, is there anything uh, noteworthy to talk about the research you, you were involved with? Like, you said flight patterns and like, is there any, yeah. anything you can describe um, about that? So, we looked at their flight patterns around wind turbines. Um, that was a little bit more before I got there and I kind of helped them finish it up. So we had a couple structures in the flight room that we would coat with different materials to try and see if the bats were repelled by it. Um, because I'm not sure if anybody that's listening knows this, but wind turbines, the way they're shiny, when bats are echolocating off them, it looks like water to them. So they go up to a wind turbine because the surface is shiny and clear and it looks like water. So they go and they they kind of do their little swoop um, nobody can see my hand gestures right now, but like they swoop down. They fly over it and they swoop down to to take a sip while they're flying. And so they do the same thing around wind turbines um, because they think it's water. So we tried a a number of coatings on the surface to see if it would repel bats. Um, And it was kind of inconclusive, honestly. It was was a little bit weird at the fact that it happens sometimes. Something else we think that they're intrigued by with wind turbines. And I really haven't kept up with the research. So it may have been a a problem that's been solved by now. I'm hoping probably not, but (laughs) yeah, that was, that was kind of what we looked at. And then we ended up looking at, um, how the transmitters affect their flight patterns. So whenever we would put them, we would shave a little, little part right between their, um, their shoulder blades, we would shave their little hair off and we would put our eyelash glue on there and stick a transmitter on. And those transmitters are expensive. So we're like, they have to stay on. Um, and you have to go find them. It's just, it's a mess to go find them. Um, it's easier when you're just in a flight room. <laughs> when you release them for telemetry, it's harder. Um, yes. 
but so we would watch them in the flight room. We had cameras set up as well with the LIDAR so we could see like in 3D their flight patterns throughout the yeah. time of the hour. Um, and so we looked and we kind of noticed that their flight patterns were different when they had a transmitter versus when they didn't have a transmitter. Um, and that's a little concerning. For that's concerning. That's very concerning. That. You don't want thinking. to affect the way that they're flying and the way yep. that they're foraging and things like that. Yep. Uh, and so that's kind of why we, we tried our different methods of application. And yep. um, so truly that, it was inconclusive, you really but do, you can't really do like a little one around their ankle because it's not quite big enough. You can't, you can do like an armband, but it doesn't really work that much. And you can't really do one around their neck because it doesn't really work as well. So bats are kind of weird to put transmitters on. Um, yeah. And that's kind of something that I'm hoping the technology has developed a bit more to where we don't have to eyelash glue um, transmitters onto bats anymore. But that's another thing I haven't really kept up with the research on. Um, yes. so What's the different methods of that? Um, and they also would try and chew them off. So I know whenever I was leaving TCU, there was a lovely grad student who was doing research on um, putting like cayenne and stuff on their transmitters to see if they would still chew them off. Uh, we had another grad student that looked at swimming pools around Fort Worth to see, um, and like she would set up cameras and count like the species diversity and abundance and everything yeah. around there. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's a lot of what we did was all things that. Yeah. <laughs> so the windmill research was inconclusive, but at least y'all um, probably found better ways of applying transmitters and, you know, like it, it, something came of it ultimately. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and we got a really, like we got our flight facility. It took a while. We had to set up a lot of like, um, like plastic structures and things to like, like a grid almost to get it like LIDAR scanned. But yep. now like the entire room, like you, it's so cool to me that you can kind of look at it from a bird's eye view in like, it's a 3d box and oh, it's wow. a real thing. You can look at it on the computer and you can see where this bat has gone. Like if That's you just crazy scale it down and it's really cool that's cool yeah, way cool. over my head that sort of stuff that sort of yeah stuff. i don't know how we did that i was over my head too. <laughs> i you're was like this is cool you're just like you're here to see bats and work with I know. bats and, i'm here to yeah. click start on the camera <laughs> and feed them their mealworms <laughs> so you you go through tcu learn a lot about bats you're you're mm -hmm. a cheerleader um and you graduate last year May of 2020, yes. Yeah. That last year. That's yeah, last it's year. So long. <laughs> yeah. And now you're a Texan by nature. Yes, I am. A very cool organization. Um, we got to talk all about Texan by nature. It, uh, but you can go ahead and just g give a brief overview of what Texan by nature is and what y'all do. Yeah. So I started at Texan by nature. Um, whenever I graduated in May of 2020, I was desperately looking for an internship. Cause I was actually planning on staying at TCU and getting my master's, um, in, you know, bat research things, I guess, um, master, I don't even remember what I was going to get environmental management or something like that. <laughs> it's yeah. been a while. Um, and that didn't end up working out for me. So I moved back to Austin, um, and was looking for internships and something that was related to conservation, but also I was really interested in business. Um, I feel like I, I didn't really want to sit in a lab all day. So I was like, what can I get my internship in? I don't really know. And I was looking on uh, Aggie job board and Indeed and all these different places. And I ended up stumbling across this lovely little company called Texan by Nature. And I was like, what is this? Really like the name. It's it's punny and I like it. Um, 
And I looked on their website and it turns out that one of my friends from TCU was also an intern there and I had no idea. Um, and they were also, I had a friend that is a videographer for Ben Masters. It's a mutual friend of ours um, who is working on a film um, called Deep in the Heart, which is going to be premiering in 2022, I believe. You would probably know more than me. Yeah. Um, and I saw that that was on their website as well. And I was like, my friend is working on that film. So I already had so many connections within this small industry. And I knew Ben Masters was on the advisory council. And yeah. I was like, I, is this love at first sight? I feel like I fit in so well here. And so I um, applied for my internship. I interviewed um, and I got the internship and I loved it. And then a couple months into my internship, I was offered a more substantial position um, as a program or a junior program manager. I'm still a junior program manager, but hopefully we'll be a program manager <laughs> sometime soon. Um, so yeah, Texan by Nature exists to bring business and conservation together. Um, I feel like there is a big gap in that, um, that we're working really hard to kind of remedy. So we actually just had our summit event, which is our annual conference where we strive to bring a lot of business leaders from oil and gas, um, construction, architecture, finance, um, like all of these industries across Texas and bring them to watch all of our conservation partners presentations. And we allow the business leaders to present as well on what they're doing for um, their sustainability goals and things like that. Um, but we basically just want to create a space where we can connect and catalyze these relationships between business and between conservation. So conservation organizations can get funding and get more people involved and businesses can also become more conservation minded and sustainable and learn from the people that are doing it. We're not reinventing the wheel. We don't want anybody to re just start their own things because there are people that are doing really great things in Texas and we want to put them together so yeah. they can do great things together. Um, so very, very, very broadly, that is what Texan by Nature does. Mm -hmm. um, we have a lot of different programs that help us do that. Um, I work with our Conservation Wrangler projects. So we select um, up to six projects for an 18 month period. Um, and currently I'm working with Audubon, Texas and San Antonio Zoo and the Texas Longleaf team. So those are my three projects that I'm working on right now. Um, and so basically we give them about 12 to 18 months of support in whatever they need to amplify their project. Um, so we just want to catalyze what they're doing. We're not recreating what they're doing. We're not trying to change what they're doing. They tell us what they need. So we'll provide them with a one pager. So like some more business assets and things like that. Um, we provide them with a video, like a five minute, and, and then we do like a minute cut and a 30 second cut from that video, basically just stating like the benefits and the impacts, the positive benefits and impacts of their projects, as well as stating their needs. So if they need funding, we give them the space to ask for funding. And we play the video in front of all these great companies like HEB and Dell and Marathon Petroleum and they, they get to, yeah, they get to ask for funding, which is really awesome because a lot of these companies are like, we have the money and we really want to support awesome. great work. Lots of money. <laughs> Lots of money sitting around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and people really And do ES, ESG goals to be fulfilled. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's one thing. If you have a project and you would like to quantify ecosystem service benefits and put numbers on it, they love that because they can report that. So that's one thing that we do as well. Um, and then, so for the San Antonio Zoo, I've been kind of, they have a horn lizard reintroduction project that I've been helping them with, go frogs. Um, it got and, full circle. 
became full I know, circle. coming full circle. I used to cheer for the frogs, and I'm literally cheering for the frogs, like the yeah. horn lizards that are yeah. <laughs> being released. Um, I yeah. One comment about the horn frogs. I wish they would call them horn lizards at TCU. Hey, as there's a horn frog. There's a horn frog species. I know, <laughs> but but also, not to get off. Not off, not to get off on the. I'll go. Stuff. I'll go on a little bit of a history. So. Okay, good. <laughs> he was founded. I don't know the year they were founded. And the horn toad would be better than horn frog because there's not a such thing as a horn toad, I don't think. But there's a horn frog. I know. <laughs> so, whenever TCU was founded, the place where TCU was in Fort Worth was just overrun with horn lizards. And so, oh, back in the day when it was two brothers yeah. that founded it. I'm, I'm, I'm a really lizards. bad horn frog. I could have looked this up ahead of time and really prepared it. Um, but I don't know the year they were founded, but it was a while ago. And right. I know it was there were horn, there were horn lizards running around. It had to be like 60 plus years ago. I think it was like the 16 or 1700s. Like I think okay. it was like oh, way a long while ago. ago. Yeah. Okay. And so it was founded by, I could be wrong though. I'm probably wrong. Or like wait, for, for wait, what was founded? TCU. TCU. It would have to be like late 1800s. Yeah. Early 1900s, maybe. I may be overshooting it by a lot. <laughs> it. It's all good. We, we corrected okay. it. Um, <laughs> it was a long ass time ago. That's it was a matter. long time ago. Yeah. But it was founded by two brothers, Addison and Randolph Clark. I know their names. So yeah. there you go. That makes up for you it. Something. <laughs> um, and so the place was just overrun with horn lizards. It They were just everywhere. And they were like trying to do construction on this university and they just couldn't get rid of the horn lizards. There were just so many. They were trying to move them and relocate them. And they're like, guys, we're trying to build buildings. Y'all got to move. Um, and so they ended up, that was like their mascot. The mascot just kind of chose them, but <laughs> because it was way long ago, they didn't call them horn lizards. They call them horn frogs. Oh, so it's uh, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just old, old school jargon. Yeah. And so they've been the horn frogs since then. And also as a cheerleader, I'm not going to sit out there on the field and say, let's go lizards. No, that sounds weird. I'm going to say go oh, frogs. I, I get it. I get it. So, get it. but yeah. Also, but I think before? the, 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 um, the founding story of TCU is very yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It shows how we used to have so many horn lizards and now we don't yeah, in that small area of the state. Yeah, they're gone from like the entire eastern third, eastern mm -hmm. half of the state, really. Yeah, they've disappeared from about two thirds of the state. Yeah, it's really so sad. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty sad. They're not in a place where they're going to be gone. Yeah. And they're going to be gone forever and we're never going to see them again, but they are in a place where they need our help. And they need yeah. our help to get back to places where they wouldn't be able to get without local our help. local extinctions sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's like the um, small pocket communities, and they can't. The genetic diversity is going to be affected, which is actually something that yeah. TCU does. Their biology department researches the genetic diversity of horn lizards. Yeah, I have cool. a couple friends that do that. That's cool. We'll have <laughs> to get them on. We can... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will reach out and see if they would be interested because I'm sure they they love to talk about horn lizards. But on the bright side, PhD student, uh, so they're okay, pretty yeah. busy. But on the bright side, um, if you go to like South Texas or West Texas areas of the of the state that haven't been met with a lot of development, um, the horn mm -hmm. lizards are doing fairly well in some of those areas. I'm embarrassed to say the very first time I saw a horn lizard in person was a couple months ago. Yeah, yeah. I had never. For the longest time, we were trying to link up to go get you a horn lizard. And I know. And I, I offered multiple times, my... but we never <laughs> could make it happen. <laughs> well, I feel like my 
my first experience with horn lizards. That was special. That was very special. I got to release baby horn lizards out in the hill country with the San Antonio Zoo. Um, And it was, it was very emotional. It was very special to be able to release those little babies. We'll have to put the picture of me with the horn lizard as my (laughs) Were there any any researchers studying that reintroduction effort? Like, Um, so mainly a lot of the research that study the reintroduction effort is through the Fort Worth Zoo um, because their numbers are just a lot higher. So the San Antonio Zoo is working with a different clade. um, So their, their, their reproduction is not quite the same as the Fort Worth Zoo um, because Texas Parks and Wildlife is a little bit more involved in the Fort Worth Zoo as well. And because Fort Worth Zoo, TCU, everything is in the same little area up there. This is a perfect place for horn lizard conservation. Yeah, it is. It really is. Um, so they study the releases out in Mason County, typically. Um, but I mean, they've, they're getting insane research from that. Actually, my friend that studies, um, studies all of that. She looks at their poop under a microscope all the time and sees what kind of species they're eating. (laughs) So she's doing great. A lot of, uh, ants and mainly ants. Yeah. Termites, red harvester ants and termites. And termites, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're pretty uh, obligate with ants and mm-hmm. mice. Uh, that's why it's probably a good thing. Um, if they could eat anything, I bet they'd be heavily collected by people in the herb industry. But they're very hard to keep in captivity yeah. because of their diet restrictions. They are almost impossible. It's yes. taken San Antonio Zoo a while, like a, a zoological facility. That's the impressive it's part about these reintroductions. Yeah, I mean, they have and reintroduction. That's the most impressive part is they're able to simulate their their wild natural history. And And it's just they need such specific temperatures. They need such specific. They used to have to go in and mist them like every hour and just make sure they're getting enough moisture and things like that. And their feeding mechanisms are so difficult, too, because it's they don't eat anything that's dead. They have to be live lizard. I mean, live um, harvester ants. Yep. And if you have too many, it will attack the babies. Wow. So you have to like, you have to have a special system of like distributing the ants. Like they climb up a stick and the, the lizard gets them off. So it's, it's like almost impossible to keep a yeah. horn lizard alive yeah. in captivity. Yeah. It's as difficult as it is for a zoological facility to keep them alive. It's like for your suburban family, it's, it's like. It's not a good idea. <laughs> I can imagine back in the day when they were more widespread throughout Texas, people would like, you know, take one and throw in a tank and oh yeah, they like, like a gas like, station. Keep it for like, you know, a month and then it starves to death and they them at gas stations. I they would that. eat a horn lizard. There was a gas station. I heard a story about this and I can't remember where it was, but every time you'd fill up your tank of gas, they'd give you a horn lizard <laughs> as like a bonus. I don't know where that was. I'm gonna have to look that up. Somebody told me that story. People in uh, like East Texas and Southeast Texas don't realize often they don't realize that horn lizards used to be found all the way out there as well. Like they were, they covered like pretty much the entire state. I think it's maybe with the exception of a few like deep East Texas counties, but they were pretty much all over the state. They were pretty much all over the state. And it's just funny to me that in Oklahoma and Arizona, they are prevalent in their same regions, but our animal, our state reptile, the Texas horn <laughs> lizard is disappearing. Yeah. It's very, uh, and we, well, we also have two other species of, hor- of uh, horn lizard. Mm-hmm. We have the mountain shorthorned. It's, uh, 
down in like the Davis Mountains, uh, mainly. That's where I saw a couple this year. It might be in the Chisos Mountains too, or one of those other mountain ranges. And then we have the the round-tailed horn lizards, which is a really small, cute cute. one. Yeah, I like the the round-tailed ones are really (laughs) cute. I mean, the Texas horn lizards are very cute as well, but the round-tailed ones are really cute. I like like, the whole genus, Rhinosoma, there's like some really amazing ones. Some are, some are really big. Some have huge horns, like way bigger than a Texas horn lizard. Mm-hmm. There's one in, maybe it's a regal horn lizard. It's in like Mexico, I think, or maybe it's in one of the West, some, somewhere West of Texas. Um, but yeah, it's a really, really unique group of lizards, you know, very specialized. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but yeah, there's, honestly, I think the ones in Mexico are cooler than the Texas horn lizards. Yeah. There's some really cool ones in Mexico. They're like, some are like huge. And they got like massive horns and stuff. Are you familiar with the relationship between the shrike, the loggerhead shrike and the Texas horn lizard? I am not, but I do know loggerhead shrikes are super cool. That's mm-hmm. all I know Loggerhead about. shrikes are really cool because they, they impale their prey on barbed wire a lot of the time. Okay. And so there was a study done that I actually learned about probably my freshman year and my intro environmental science or biology class. Um, So they would find heads of Texas horn lizards impaled like the skulls on the barbed wire. And so you can tell their horn length. And so they found out that the loggerhead shrikes were basically changing the genetics. This is my, I'm trying to be like the most family friendly (laughs) and least like scientific about this. Um, But the horn lizard basically adapted to where the ones with the longer horns survived because the ones with shorter horns couldn't like defend themselves against the loggerhead shrikes. And so they could tell, and they could do this research because their little skulls were just like on display on the yeah. barbed wire, on the barb- yeah. from the loggerhead shrike. And so they, it was like the, the birds were just like putting them there, like research these skulls. And so they, they measured the horn length of all of them and the ones that were surviving around the area. And so the loggerhead shrike basically just changed the population and, and caused them to adapt to grow long horns. That's what drives natural selection and evolution. Isn't that cool? That's, that's I just cool. think that's cool. Every time I see barbed wire now, I'm like, just kind of looking. I'm like, are there yeah. loggerhead shrikes around here? I'm like, see some skulls. <laughs> I've seen uh I've seen like mice on on barbed wire and little like skinks and stuff from loggerhead. So loggerhead shrikes are their little little songbird that is mm-hmm. like carnivorous and they eat eat stuff and yeah you, you already mentioned they impale little vertebrates vertebrate animals onto or even uh, like grasshoppers too little invertebrates. Yeah, I see grasshoppers a lot. They do a lot of grasshoppers, that, but I've never seen anything like super metal like a horned lizard skull. I've seen pictures and, and it's cool because <laughs> yeah. the horn lizard skull is kind of neat looking, you know. They are cool. Yeah. They look like little triceratops. Yeah. Skull. <laughs> yeah. Do you like my uh my pumpkin carving? Those of a horn lizard skull. I didn't see your pumpkin carving. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to go look. I didn't yeah. do like pumpkin. It kind of looked more like a triceratops, but and someone said it looked like um some dragon from some little kid show. I don't know, whatever. I'll try my best. <laughs> I mean, I feel like horn lizards are kind of like modern. A little, little dragon. Yeah, little dragon. We'll go with it. They can eat ants. That's that's like equivalent to breathing fire. It's pretty cool. All right, so we're um, we've got. We were talking about Texan by nature, um, and then I got us off topic. Where were we, where were we at with that? 
Yeah, so I was talking about what I do with the Conservation Wrangler program. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm yeah, I'm way too ADHD to remember. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I'm amazed that I remember. Yeah, it's what I do every day. So I remember. Um, yeah, so I helped the San Antonio Zoo um, and I'm currently still helping with their basically kind of organization of everything, just like getting it all together into like a, a boxed program. Um, because they're doing great work in the lab. But also Andy, the the director of conservation, gets emails multiple times a day, every day, like can you put lizards on my land? I would like lizards on my land. I really want some lizards on my land. I'm a landowner, blah, blah, blah. And so that's not sustainable. You can't respond to every single person that's sending you an email like that. And that's a good problem to have. No, it definitely is. (laughs) I mean, not complaining by any, um, because everybody's very into, we've kind of had to look at it through the lens of, okay, how can we keep these people engaged? We don't have enough lizards to put lizards on everyone's property. So we've created an advocacy guide. Um, where we can get people more involved in advocacy, like what they can do to prepare their land for lizards, what they can do. And and through that, whether or not lizards come back to their land, they're preparing their land for other native biodiversity. And Horn lizards are a great umbrella species or a flagship species. We like to call them our Trojan horse because it kind of gets you in the door. And then you're like, okay, let's talk land management. And it's a little bit less less glamorous than horn lizards. Um, but yeah, I mean, people are kind of realizing now that the methods that you've used to manage your land and the methods that your father used, your grandfather and all of that, it's not as sustainable. So all of the fire ant treatment where you're going and dumping the chemicals on the fire ant treatment, it, I mean, it's, it's not sustainable. You can't do that because it's driving away all of the other ants, ants. that are native. Yeah. So we're kind of, trying to introduce more sustainable land management practices that save you money and are better for your land in the long run. Um, so that's kind of what we're doing through the San Antonio Zoo. I'm also working with Audubon, Texas on their um, coastal island rookeries. Um, this is more of a bird thing. I know you're, you want to probably talk about horn lizards because you're is more our, than birds, yeah, no, but I'm going to cool. talk about birds. Um, do you, uh, you're in contact with our, our pal Romy with that stuff? Right. Hi, Romy. Yeah, he listens yeah. too. Hopefully. I got <laughs> he weird. Romy's going to come on. Does he really? He has a tool yeah. yeah, he was like, I was listening to Andrew's podcast on the way up here at the summit. And oh, I was Romy. Like, oh, God, I'm going to be on it. You're going to hear me. He's going to be on soon, hopefully. He's going to love this one. He's going to love it. Because we mentioned it. We need to go to Desert Door. I need to go to Desert Door. I want to go. Yeah. Doing, Desert Door is doing very cool things with conservation. Yeah. Yes. Desert yeah. Door on. Um, yeah. I don't know if you can have So Tall, but. Yeah, let's see. Sonny was talking about it the other day in the office, and I was like, I don't know if I can even drink that. Okay, I think. But yeah, so Audubon. Audubon. Yeah, so Audubon does a lot of really cool stuff. Audubon does conservation ranching. They do, I mean, they do just urban things, and they also do um, their coastal conservation, which is what I'm assisting with. So, as we know, birds migrate through Texas. A lot of birds. They go from Canada through Texas. And so the Gulf of Mexico, like the Texas mid coast, there are a ridiculous amount of birds that go through there. And so all of these little islands off the coast are free from predators, free from humans. And it's the perfect place for them to nest and have their babies without being disturbed. Okay. But 
that little area right there is also in the Gulf Intracoastal Waterway. And so there's a lot of erosion. Yeah. Uh, so basically what Audubon is doing is they partnered with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers oh, yeah. to take all of that dredged material and to apply it in a beneficial use to build these islands for the birds. Um, and not only are they good for the birds, they're also really good for um, protection against tropical storms yeah. and water filtration and carbon sequestration and all of these really great things for humans. Yeah. Um, so basically, yeah, rolls in, it's going to hit the island first and it's going to be yeah. a lot less damage to you on the coast. And they're, um, they're always going to dredge the intercoastal. So it's good they have a program yeah. to use that material in a way that's environmentally um, well, typically for the dredge material, they'll just go dump it in the ocean somewhere else yeah. because they don't know what to do right with it. It's not like they want to waste yeah. it, but nobody is like, hey, can I have they that stuff? They used to fill wetlands. <laughs> wetlands with dredge material really yeah. bad back in, you know. Yeah. So it's yeah. So now this, this program's super cool too. Benefiting um, birds. Benefiting birds, benefiting Texans, benefiting everybody. Everybody wins. So, so you, you got to go down, you got to go out in the field. Right. Yeah, I did. I did. I got to see yeah, uh, a lot of pelicans, a lot of roseate spoonbills, yep. and reddish egrets. Poor, and poor man's flamingo. <laughs> I love those. They're my one of my favorites. They're Texas flamingo. They're, a lot of people look at them and they think they're an actual flamingo, but they're they're a, they're a cool bird. So cute. Um, also, pelican babies are very cute. There was a flamingo in that area recently, though. In an, actual, an actual flamingo somewhere in the mid coast. Interesting. Yeah, um, my break out of a Heath, zoo. Heath, um, the ornithologist I had on, he went out to see it. That's funny. Like, last week, yeah, it, it drifted in from somewhere. I don't know where. Oh, I was gonna uh, ask. Wild flamingo. Out of a zoo or something. <laughs> no, that no, was a wild. It was a wild flamingo. Interesting. Yeah, yeah so lots of cool birds down there. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it was beautiful, and uh, dolphins. I somehow forget that dolphins exist in the, uh, on the coast. Yep. So I was amazed when I saw all these dolphins in the, in the waterway. I was like, oh my God. Yep. But I was. A lot of people call those uh, porpoises, but we actually don't have a native porpoise. Yeah. Bottle nose dolphins. Mm -hmm. I learned that recently, actually. I saw one, it went down to the bottom and it got a flounder and it like flopped it up. Oh, on the wow. Like, like flop it in plane with this fish. And it was, it was so cute. I love, I felt like I was in a Disney movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, marine, I need to have a, a marine mammal expert on because marine mammals are cool. I wanted to be a marine biologist when I was younger, actually. So I, all of my summer camps that I went to were educational because that's the yeah. nerd that I am. And so I yeah. went to a sea camp down at Texas A&M Galveston. That was my yeah. summer camp. Um, and we studied a lot of that. Um, we would do, you know, when you like put a cup in the water and you like, filter it and you get all the stuff like the plankton and all that and you look at it under a microscope yeah. um we did all that we studied a lot of marine species and i just ultimately decided that i would rather be terrestrial <laughs> marine a lot I don't of know, people not... are are led to biology and wildlife and conservation because of their interest in marine biology when they're kids but I... then they realize it's pretty tough for one it's very competitive so many people want to do it and two there are so many other options if you want to work in conservation. Yeah, you know, I just decided that the, the one, I love animals. I love all wildlife, but the one yeah. thing I do not like is fish. I do not <laughs> like fish. They freak me out. I struggle. No shame. To, I struggle awesome. to like swim in lakes and rivers knowing that yeah. there's fish there. I do not like fish. I don't know why. 
I used yeah. to not like birds, and I've gotten over that. I like birds well, now. My buddy Owen will make you a fish lover. He's, he's a pretty good advocate for fish. You have to talk to him sometime. I just don't like how they lay eggs <laughs> in the water. Yeah. I don't like how they their faces look. <laughs> it's, it's all things that are really dumb. I don't know what it is. And I think it's probably because I'm vegan as well, and I've just never yeah. been interested in eating fish. I don't know. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> we can talk about veganism if you want. Oh, if you want. I'm not really an activist. Oh, if, if anything, I think you're the only vegan I know that is very pro-hunting. I am I mean, like Sustainable hunting, right? Oh, 100%. And point to make. Yeah. The reason why I'm vegan is because I'm allergic to things. I'm yes. allergic to dairy. I don't like eggs. I think eggs are kind of yucky. And I've been vegetarian for most of my life because red meat makes me sick. Um, and just nothing is really appetizing to me, like meat-wise. So I've been yes. vegan for about four years and vegetarian for a long time before that. Um, I'm by no means going to sit on here and be a vegan activist because I don't really care if you eat meat or not. It's like a religion. It's like a religion for a lot of people. Yeah. I, I'm not I mean, knocking them, it's but it's definitely spiritual for me as well. Like I really am enjoying what I eat. And I think just eating and cooking and everything, it's it's like a passion of mine. I love to cook. Yeah. But ultimately, um, but... one, it is very environmentally sustainable compared to other food sources. Yeah. Um, yeah. I used to argue with people, I'm not a vegan. I'm not, I mean, I'm I'm just Andrew's vegan. <laughs> Spread the word. <laughs> But I used to argue with vegans. I was like, you know, well, you're a vegan, but you still eat, you know, crop foods, um, yeah. which has a huge environmental impact. But actually, that's a, not a, a valid argument because most of the crops that we grow are to feed cattle. <laughs> Truly, yeah. I actually uh, listened to so a presentation on the summit that was about um, cattle production. Jason, oh, Dr. my God. That, was was, that dude was cool. He, I love that. A lot of people were like, it was really academic. I didn't really understand it. My, I was it on the very, edge of my seat the entire time. I loved it. He made it very easy to understand. Me and Tina both agreed about this. <laughs> he oh, made it very oh, easy. Yeah. 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 He's a very smart man. Um, um, yeah, um, no, I, I won't sit on here and um, try yeah, and convince yeah. anyone to not eat meat because that's a personal choice, to be honest. And true. if you don't come to veganism because you want to come to veganism, I don't want you, you know, it's like, I feel like that's when people get really aggressive about it. Um, and I don't think that that's cool. Not very productive. Don't judge people, especially yeah. based on what they eat. Like that's gross. That's weird. Don't be, don't be rude. Yeah. But so yeah, like hunting you is care about what you put in your body, but you shouldn't care about what somebody else puts in their body, you know? Yeah. From an, like an environmental and ethical standpoint, um, I would, I would put, like if, if somebody is able to only eat wild game, I think they're even with vegans on an ethical standpoint mm -hmm. as far no, as environmentally sound. I it so much as well because you are very careful about the meat that you eat. You don't, you know, you're very, um, very sustainable carnivore. Yeah, omnivore. I don't eat. I don't eat. Beef. I wouldn't call anybody a carnivore because I think everybody's an omnivore. But we're yeah. A lot of vegans argue that we're biologically herbivores, but I'm fairly certain early humans were out hunting mastodon and mammoth. You know, if you look at the dentition, so if you look at people's teeth, I do not have canines. Yeah, so I would we're not, so we're not a carnivore, food. but we're probably so we're dogs are omnivores. Dogs are omnivores, and our teeth look very, very different from dogs. Does that? Like, I mean, I there's got to be a consensus among anthropologists, right? Not really. No, it's so interesting to me. But I always I asked that question in my, my mammalogy class, and I got 
eye rolls because <laughs> I was like, it doesn't make sense to me because That's our funny. dentition and our teeth match with frugivores yeah. and herbivores. They don't match with, well, I guess some people have like stronger canines, but they don't match. They don't look like dogs. Like we don't have the really shredding molars like dogs do to eat meat, but yeah, maybe that's just, we're all, we're, we're, you know, we're all okay. I, I don't know how you explain the fact that early humans definitely ate meat. No, they know. definitely did. And I don't try and explain it because I'm not an early human. Like, that's so like, I don't know, like maybe the earliest humans started out as herbivores but as as we went through geologic time there were certain yeah. groups of humans that started eating meat and that's what like and hunting was a big part of yeah. like gaining social skills apparently you know mm -hmm. well if you look at our gut as well just physiologically our gut is not we're not ruminants we're not, we're not. made to just eat grass right yeah so let me tell you as a goat expert <laughs> we are not made oh, we yeah. are not ruminants yeah we kind of cool We'd be a lot more gassy, but right. <laughs> we are not made to just eat plants. Right. We're, but also goats really don't eat things like beans and, you know, other grains. Like, I don't or know. Just eating grass. I feel like I'm going to get like shot by vegans for just saying we're not made to just eat plants, but we're not. You're supposed yeah. to branch out and, you know, have fermented yeah. foods and, you know, there's a definite. I can't have fermented foods because <laughs> of my gut problems. That's a bummer. I don't have the gut flora to break down a lot of those carbohydrates. That's the Love main reason I'm so restricted. Um, <laughs> um, your travels. You've been around a little bit. You went to. I've been around. Yeah, I actually. I have. Didn't you go to Papua New Guinea? No, I went to Indonesia. You went to Indonesia. Okay, I was about to say. Like, I don't know. That's still New cool. Guinea's close That's to Indonesia. Cool. They're close by. Okay, um, I wasn't that far off, but Papua New Guinea would have been cooler though. <laughs> That is actually on my list. I, my, yeah, one of my same. friends that I made, one of my friends, my Indonesian friends was like, you have to go to New Guinea. And I was yeah. like, oh, I'm down. I want to go, dude. We're friends on Facebook. Cool. Still. I'm like, let's go. Um, yeah. So throughout my time at TCU, I had the opportunity to visit three different countries. Um, and I feel very lucky to be able to do so. TCU's yep. study abroad program is nuts. I really, it, it seems like a very privileged thing to be able to do. And it is because I went to TCU, but TCU helps a lot financially with study abroad. So it yes. wasn't as big of an investment as it seems, I guess. Yes. I, I got a lot of scholarship to be able yes. to go, um, which I'm very thankful for because that was a huge chunk of my education. Yes. I learned more in the month trips that I was on than I did in my entire four years at TCU. That shaped me so much as a person being able to go to all these different countries. Yes. Um, so the first place that I went the summer after my freshman year nope summer after my sophomore year yes um I went to South Africa and it is one of the most beautiful countries in the world um yes. TCU has a rhino program so there are very strong advocates against rhino poaching which is kind of funny but when you think about it the head of the environmental science department at TCU is a South African man. He's from South Africa, Dr. Mike Slattery. I love him, love him so much. He's actually, I've been to two out of the three countries with him. Um, he's like my, my TCU dad, I love him. Uh, so he is actually an expert in rivers. He does fluvial uh, geomorphology. Fluvial geomorph that's 
I'm starting yeah. to get into that in my, in my career at the consulting yeah, so firm. That's kind of what he is. And he was an attorney for a while. He would like do um, a lot of law things. And water yeah. act stuff, probably. Mm-hmm. Yep. A lot yeah. of that. Um, but he actually fought um, and he was from Johannesburg and he was around during apartheid. He was a soldier and he is, has very strong roots in South Africa. And it's, um, he has a very interesting story through that, which is not my story to tell, but, um, he came to America and, you know, got his, his degree. I think he was, he was, he's been everywhere. He's just a really cool dude Um, at CCU for a while. And so he's, his heart is in South Africa for sure, because that's where he was from. Um, and so he is very good friends with Dr. William Folds, who is a wildlife veterinarian on at Amakala game reserve in South Africa. And so basically I got to shadow a wildlife vet for about a month and go do rhino dehorning procedures hands-on. I got to hold the rhino horn in in my hands and um, poaching is an issue because a lot of countries think that rhino horn is medicinal, but it's keratin. It is the same thing as your fingernails. It is the same thing as goat horns. It is the same thing as anything with a horn, basically, Um, except for elephants, because that's ivory. But that's a tusk, not a horn, so I don't know. Um, But yeah, I I totally fell in love with South Africa. I send you some pictures as well of the me with baby rhinos and things like that. But I mean, I stuck my arm up a rhino's butt to clear out poop do an ultrasound nice. because their, their skin on their stomach is two inches thick. And so you can't do an ultrasound to see if they're pregnant. You got to go through there. But so, yeah. yeah, I've been very hands-on. Very, <laughs> a very close um, relationship with rhinos. Yeah. And so we did, um, I, I was able to do like injections and, um, start IVs on zebras, zebras. If you're, if you're South African. I like uh-huh. Zebra. Um, I like the, I mean, South, I, the South African accent. very, very cool. I like it. Isn't it? Yeah, I love it. Um, but no, I mean, we were at Kirstenbach Botanical Gardens um, for a little bit for a day and just saw the most beautiful flora ever. South um, Africa, South Africa's flora is very overlooked. A lot of people go there. I was just talking about this with my friend Adam Black. He went to South Africa with Joey, crime pays botany doesn't die. They went to South Africa and (laughs) instead of spending all their time doing the safari thing, going and see megafauna, they, they went out and looked for rare plants and they found these amazing plants. They're looking for these succulents of various species. And yeah, it was neat to see somebody go to South Africa. Flower is one of my favorites. The Protea flower is like the the country's like national flower and it's stunning. What's it called again? The Protea. Rodeo flower. Okay, I'm gonna have to look that up. Yeah, is, sure. is it an orchid or something? Um, no, it's P R O T E A. Um, I don't think it's an orchid, but it's like it's it's kind of almost looks like um, I don't know. It kind of looks like a jungle plant. Honestly, it's really yeah. cool. It's, it's a cool flower. I'm looking it up right now. I'm interested. It's a flower. But I really uh, I thought it was cool that um, seeing somebody go to South Africa and mm-hmm. and highlight another aspect of their biodiversity because you, you you get used to seeing people go there and they go to they go to the main game, uh, the main national park there, uh, Kruger. Big five. Yeah. And they'll see the big five, the, the rhinos, the amazing biodiversity there, aside from the megafauna as well. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, that's a pretty flower. I I don't know how to describe it though. Right. It's kind of like almost sunflower. Yeah, it's nice. Not, 
like the middle part. I don't know what, um, but I think that flower is gorgeous. It's one of my favorites. Proteaceae, Proteaceae family. So it's not an orchid for sure. Mm. It's nice. I like it. Yeah. So tourism is a huge part of the South African economy. Um, I will always eco. Well, tourism in general. Um, but I will always be a shameless plug for Amakala Game Reserve and other ecotourism resorts like that yeah. um, that are run by families and run by native South Africans that are still living in their places where they've always lived. You know, I mean, there's such a separation of wealth in South Africa. Oh, Adam was telling me about that. Which is not really wildlife related, but it, there's a, there's a huge, there's no middle class in South That's Africa. You're rich. either in slums or you're incredibly rich. And you said it, they'll be like across the street from each other. You can, yeah, you can see it at the, at the, um, like the government you buildings. That? You can look out from the government buildings and all you shanty, see is shanty towns. That's what mm-hmm. he called them. Shanty towns. Yeah. It's very sad. So I will always be a shameless plug for ecotourism in South Africa because that's what they rely on. Promoting Native South Africans. Mm-hmm. Promoting Native South Africans and supporting them and not going to stay at safari resorts. You don't need all-inclusive drinks if you're going to see a rhino. <laughs> but that's just my personal opinion. But I found this really cool. So poaching is a huge, huge issue for these game reserves. Um and so that was a lot of my studies there as well as looking into the anti-poaching units. They use things like dogs to sniff out poachers. I mean, these poachers will come out on the game reserve and camp amidst yes. lions and things to yes. get the rhino horn. Can we and- point out that the poaching is also a socioeconomic problem? Oh, 100%. A lot of these poachers aren't bad people necessarily. They're poor yeah. people trying to yes. survive. <laughs> yeah, and that's part of the point that I was going to make as well. And probably some the of them pandemic. are bad people, but... So through the pandemic, I actually met um, with, I had a Zoom call with Dr. Folds um, about a year ago, probably. Um, And so during the pandemic, South Africa banned cigarettes. So the poachers moved to trafficking cigarettes as opposed to rhino horn. It was way easier for them, way less risk. And so in the year of 2020, they didn't lose a single rhino at Amakala Game Reserve because the poachers moved to an easier source of trafficking. That's very fascinating. <laughs> so it's not like they want to go out and kill rhinos. They don't They're just want trying to, to survive. Yeah. To. yeah. That and ties into the point I made. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever, um, there was a documentary called Trophy on Netflix. Did you ever watch it? Yeah. Yeah. So excellent documentary. A post. And there's actually a show called Adam Ruins Everything. And there's a skit that I, I, it's like a little short that explains trophy hunting that I point people to every time. I'm not against trophy hunting. It's, it's absurd, but you're not against it. <laughs> I'm not against it because 99% of the time, the money goes towards conservation and it goes towards those game reserves and those people that need the money. Yeah. So it is hairy. It is, it, it's a, it's a sticky subject because it's, yeah. it's yeah. not. And especially as you know, the, the vegan that I am, <laughs> I don't love hunting because I wouldn't want to go out and kill anything, but yeah. There are people that are going to do it either way because they want to do it and they have the money to throw at it. So why not use that money to go towards protecting the species as a whole? And it's not like they're allowing them to go out and shoot any rhino that they see. The it's older, the older male. males that are no longer contributing to the population. They're causing problems and they would have to be cold anyways because they're competing with the younger males that are trying to take their space, like their spot and they're causing injury and they're, they're, you know, it's, it's beneficial, but it's also 
it would happen anyways. Yeah. So it's kind of a cost benefit situation to where I'm not entirely against it, but I'm not necessarily rooting for it. Um, I'm definitely for um, sustainable hunting. (laughs) I have, I have my like objective science conservation mind that's pro Mm -hmm. hunting pro or pro, you know, uh, trophy hunting. Uh, but there is also my emotional mind that can't fathom how anybody would want to kill a giraffe or an elephant. I actually so can't. I can, I'm usually good at putting myself in other people's shoes, and I'm a hunter myself. I've, I've killed mm-hmm. many animals, ducks and stuff. But with a, such a, especially an, uh, an elephant, such a, uh, an intelligent animal, yeah. such a, a, a slow to reproduce animal. I mean, they're, they, they're huge. Um, some of the last true megafauna left and how somebody finds joy in shooting that animal. I, I can't fathom that, but I, I, don't knock, I don't knock people for it if it's done I mean, sustainably I, and if it's done in the way that. How uh, anybody would want to kill a duck or a deer or anything, yeah. because that's not me. I don't, I don't understand that. That, that feeling I have extends, extends to everything for you. Yeah, it extends to everything and I don't yeah. tend to understand it, but I yeah. do accept it because I know, sustainable. That, I know that people want to do it. However, I will say canned hunting, hell That's, no. Absolutely. So canned hunting is whenever you keep a lion or a megafauna in a cage and yeah. you allow somebody to shoot it while it's in a cage. Yeah. No. Or a crocodile. There they do it with crocodiles too. Shoot it like in the wild. Like you don't know. That, that is so, that is ridiculous to me. And f- yeah. from hunt from a hunter I think those people are, I don't want to, I want to, I want to, there's so many words I want to use for this, but I'm trying to be politically uh, yeah, correct. Yeah, no, that was what's going to uh, right. I think everybody's uh, thinking of the words as well. That's why I said throw a pair. <laughs> that was, that was people that do the can hunts, they're usually, they're not outdoorsmen. They're not no, outdoorsmen. No, they just they're usually some like rich person from New York City or something Yeah. that has no connection to the natural world. They just show up. And they go and they pull a trigger on a crocodile or a lion or something. And then mm-hmm. they didn't experience a wild ecosystem. They didn't put no. themselves in a, in a vulnerable situation out in the bush. Yeah. It's a very emotionally charged subject because especially for people that do have a relationship and experience nature, yeah. for the people that come in and don't have that experience, but they want to take, nature is very give and take. You have to give yeah. in order to take. Yeah. For the people that aren't giving, you can't take. It's not right. You know, yeah. it's just anybody knows that, but that's not right. You have to give a part of yourself to nature. And you have, I mean, it's, it's just, it's yeah. transactional. It really is. It's and- so, yeah, it's, it's difficult all around. One thing I was really fascinated with about that documentary is, was the, the part where that ecologist was talking about how basically like, like so much of the South African savanna ecosystem was restored when landowners and ranchers decided they can make more money by restoring un- native ungulates back on the landscape and doing selling hunts rather than grazing cattle because cattle are really bad for those ecosystems so that that was a fascinating part um and yeah there's so many um it's a very it's a very nuanced as most of conservation is um, and can get a little emotional as it did just a second ago. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, and that's how you know people are passionate. I mean, yeah, it, uh, and that's yeah, I'm, like, why... I'm, pro, I'm pro hunting when I see these guys. Like, and that in that documentary, this guy from some rich asshole shows up and 
he like walks up to a, pu- a puddle with a crocodile in it and just shoots the crocodile and acts like he did yeah. something. I'm like, I'm pro alligator hunting where you got actually, you know, into the wild and yeah. harvest an alligator. The, that guy is a freaking asshole. I don't like him. Yeah, no. I don't like him at all. So yeah, South Africa. Oh, South Africa. All right. and, and then you went to Indonesia. I went to Costa Rica next. Okay, so Costa, Costa Rica, Rica next. was the summer after my junior year. Um, and so Costa Rica was a little bit different. We didn't really study wildlife as much. We studied um, energy production. So hydroelectric energy, geothermal energy, all those really cool sources like solar wind that we don't see a lot of in Texas. You can't do geothermal energy in Texas, unfortunately. Um, Texas is a big, big oil and gas state. Um, so you go down to Costa Rica and you see just how 98% of their energy production in Costa Rica is from renewable energy. Wow. Blows my mind. 98% because they have so much hydroelectric. I mean, they've got dams, they've got rivers, they've got so much there. And they do have um, like, you know, sources for geothermal, like heat under the earth that we don't. I have to point out that hydro is not environmentally, 100% environmentally sound either because of riverine ecosystems. Yeah, nothing it's is. Very, it's sustainable, <laughs> but it has, has a major impact on, on native fish and other aquatic organisms. Yeah, and, nothing uh, is 100%. Um, yeah. But in a place like Costa Rica, where Big deal. Yeah. most of their people are in the city area, there's a lot of pristine, untouched um, habitat and ecosystem in Costa yep. Rica. There's a lot that's been overrun by Manuel Antonio, beautiful place. Yeah. The monkeys are absolutely horrendous and they'll steal all your things because they've been talked to by humans and I hate it. I try and stay away from the touristy places as, as y'all can see. Um, I, I also will shameless plug for ecotourism in Costa Rica. If you're planning on going on vacation, look into ecotourism. Don't yeah. go to the Hyatt. Don't go to the Hilton. Don't go to an all-inclusive resort. Look into the local families because you will get so much more out of your experience by speaking to somebody who's from there and getting food from their garden that they've grown in the country and experiencing what they experience. It's just, it's, it's people go to resorts and hotels in different countries that are run by like Americans. It's It's just like, you're not even leaving America to go to America 2.0. I don't get it. Yeah. It's like Mexico is a big one. A lot of people go to Cancun, you know? Yeah. There's like a little, I guess they experience a little bit of the culture, but like, you're not getting the full culture of Mexico when you go there. I say full immersion, you know, ditch the American toilets. That's what I did in Indonesia. (laughs) It is like, oh man, it, it really shapes you as a human. They don't have toilets. Do they have the hole in the ground where you squat over it? Yeah. And then it's like the showers. It's like a bucket of water that you dump on yourself. It's just in a room. It's great. I had the best time in it. That was Indonesia, though. That's different. Costa Rica is a little bit more. Yeah. Um, the infrastructure is a little bit more built up. But <laughs> yeah, their, like much of their economy is based off ecotourism, right? Costa mm-hmm. Rica. Yep. Yeah. Sensing a theme here. I go to a lot of places where <laughs> their economy is based on ecotourism because if you have a really cool wildlife, um, and you know, if you protect nature, they will come. Yeah. I'm telling you there are in the united states i mean it's just such a large country and there aren't like across the landscape in north america i mean we can't do ecotourism all over the place but like in areas like houston like we could have a very strong ecotourism economy if we really wanted to here in houston or austin yeah. for for example um, yeah. or san antonio i think that airbnb is making it a little easier for that yeah. airbnb are kind of 
it's through the app. So it's not giving as much to, you know, to the, to the families, but I, I feel like we are getting there. We're catching yeah. up in terms of ecotourism in America. Yeah. But yeah. So Costa Rica was great. Um, it was more of a, an energy production, but I mean, I got to see a lot of really cool wildlife while I was there and different places that I went. The cloud forest is my favorite place. Of oh, yeah. It's a very unique ecosystem. Monteverde cloud forest yeah. is phenomenal. Did you go to the, the Tarcoles Ridge, the cro- big crocodiles, big American crocodiles? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've been there both times. I've been to Costa Rica. Oh, nice. I've been twice. Okay. Blows my mind every time. I think it's so cool, but I also think it kind of is like people feed them right there. Yeah, there are. I had a friend that was trying to start a, um, a, a, a croc educational facility down there and it ended up a hurricane hit and it kind of got put back. But yeah. his whole goal was to try to change the culture of, of how people are interacting with co- uh, crocodiles in that area because it's dangerous. I mean, people are feeding them and yeah. like there is human crocodile conflict and it's not good for the crocodiles. Ultimately. Oh, I'm going to be honest. There's not a guardrail. Like you, you got to be careful. Yeah. If somebody's like drunk and walking down there, oh God, you know, yeah. and there have been a lot of like deaths and things. It's not the most safe, but it is very cool to be able to see species up close. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, it's cool, but it's yeah. like, it's a little concerning. I've seen, yeah, I've I seen pictures of a guy like, like waist deep in the water with a tourist in the boat in the background. And he's like feeding a 14 foot American crocodile at, <laughs> at that river site. <laughs> so sketch so sketch. i'm very against feeding wildlife in any way shape, uh, especially a huge apex predator that is liable to rip someone's arm off yeah just uh, any wildlife even raccoons anything Raccoon, because when you feed wildlife they can't fend for themselves and they rely yeah. on you, so it's bad for them i know they're very cute but it's bad for them bad it's very bad um yeah course, indonesia i freaking want to go to that part of the world so bad Indonesia. And you got to really experience been. you got to experience a lot of the native culture there right yeah indonesia yeah. may have been like my favorite place that i've ever been yeah. it was just such a welcoming country the people the dayak people um that, Say that again? Got, like, native the dayak people dayak that's okay like, yeah d-a-y-a-k that's like okay, the native yeah. people of indonesia um they so it was more of an anthropology trip that i went on but we studied the orangutan while we were there. Um, so we were able to go visit this tribe that had never met Americans before. So as a blonde haired, blue eyed little girl, they were all like, who the hell are you? (laughs) But they welcomed us into their tribe. They, um, they have these like, Oh, and I can't remember what they're called right now, but it's like these really big, like wood houses on stilts. And it's a really long house. It's like a long house, kind of like how native Americans have it as well. Um, but that's where they have all their ceremonies. So they ended up making all this rice wine, this like jungle fermented rice wine and having this whole ceremony for us, like inviting us, welcoming us as a part of the tribe. And we had to drink this rice wine. Ooh, Ooh baby. Stout. And then they took us on a hike after and we were all just like, oh my God. And these men were, had bare feet and they were just chugging gallons of this rice wine. And they were some of the most badass people I've ever seen. But I'm going to tell you, I have never met a more like, sweet respectful just kind giving group of humans in my life um like literally these men would give you the shirt off their back and pick you up whenever you fall down it's like all the cliches like they they're just phenomenal humans Uh, and 
So what's cool about the Dayak people is that traditionally they coexist with orangutans. So orangutan means like man of the forest in that language because they live amongst them. I mean, that's what they've always done. But orangutans are disappearing because of like palm oil plantations and deforestation and things like that. Um, so I got to observe orangutans. I actually got to hold baby orangutans when I went to the um, Barute Galdikos, the orangutan care center. So Barute Galdikos is one of like the big three of primatology, Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, and Barute Galdikos. Um, so Jane Goodall does chimpanzees. Diane Fossey does gorillas, I think. Gorillas, yeah. Um, Barute Galdikos does orangutans. Yeah. And so TCU has a friendship with Barute Galdikos somehow. <laughs> I'm not sure, which is is so cool. Um, and I've met her a couple times at TCU when she's come to do like talks and things like that. And she's such a, such a wonderful lady, um, incredibly smart lady. Um, and so she welcomed us out to Indonesia and a group of us went, um, this was the only time TCU ever did the study abroad because COVID hit right after we got home January of 2020. Um, and they just never ended up doing it again. So, and the professor that I went with left. So that's it. Um, so I feel very special to have been able yeah. to go on this trip. That's, that's um, the river ecosystems of Indonesia, we stayed in a little eco lodge that was like on stilts over the swamps. Mosquitoes, awful. Vibes, amazing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was so cool. We got to go down like a riverboat. Um, and so we went to the care center, the orangutan care center for like orphaned and injured orangutans. Um, yeah. So it was a really neat experience that I wasn't expecting um, because we went to the equivalent of a preschool yeah. and all of the orangutans, their mothers had been killed by deforestation yeah. or they had been shot or they had been macheted by people. Or, horrifying. Yeah. And so all of these, I mean, they really were like children, like infants. Yeah. They would just cling onto you. And I had this experience, which is one of my favorite experiences ever. Um, there was this like more shy, introverted female um, over off to the side. And so I, I sat with her and I sat down um, and she was kind of like looking at me like a little bit skeptical. Um, and I'm kind of a shy, introverted female. So that's why I chose that one. Um, and so I picked up a stick off the ground and I started like making like little lines and little swirls and circles and designs in the sand. And she was watching she was watching and then she kind of started doing it with her finger and like doing the same thing and drawing designs in the sand. And so I handed her the stick and then she started drawing with the stick <laughs> in the sand. And I was That's in amazing. I was in tears. I mean, they're wildlife. Like having an experience like That's that with wildlife, it just connects you so you much. Know. They're they're so intelligent. It's insane. Yeah. And it's people are people view them as nothing i mean people view them as put on this earth just to yeah. abuse did, did you have a like when i go to the zoo and i see any great ape i i'm kind of weird I, I really embrace my my primate biology we, oh, all, have it, we all have it in us just most oh, yeah. of us don't ever ever think about it society when i see a primate a great a great ape especially i'm like what's up brother like you're, yeah Long oh yeah cousin, i know. love bonobos we've had a we've had a bonobo yeah. conversation before i love bonobos, I love bonobos. bonobos are really freaking did you did you really get that deep primate connection when you were with that chimp i feel like myself personally i embrace that side of myself very much because yeah. and in that moment it must have been just so amazing 
and I didn't really, I, and I, I'm very also hesitant about anthropomorphizing things. So, yeah, but we're, but those oh, of you that don't know, a, you're thinking about it from a, like a, you're an alien looking at earth. Like they're looking at a human and a chimp. We're just like the same, you yeah, know, yeah. like 98% genetically the same. And so whatever anthropomorphizing you're worried about, ultimately how, how you feel about that chimp, it's valid because we're both, yeah. we're both hominids. We're both in the hemididae family. We're in the same family yeah. as that animal, you know? Yeah. So it's fascinating. Yeah. So when I say that she's like drawing or whatever, she's not drawing. She's just she's copying your behavior. She's imitating my behaviors, um, which is insanely cool because she doesn't have a mother that she can imitate those behaviors from because she's lost her mother. Yeah. So I can't teach her how to be an orangutan, but I can teach her how to imitate actions. That's yeah. that's why that's really cool to me. It's not cool. Yeah. Oh my gosh, she was drawing. That's the anthropomorph anthropomorphic okay, gotcha. thing gotcha. that I'm worried about. I gotcha. But it was just, you know, they'd that's wrestle with you and they'd want you to swing them around. And it was just, they're so strong. And it's just like, man, humans are really weak compared to orangutans. <laughs> it's funny. But yeah, I feel like I definitely embrace the more, the more animal side of myself. I feel like that sounds, that's been like so societally. We're all, we all have it in us though. Yeah. You know, but our, I think primal, our primal being is that of a, of a, a great ape that descended from a common ancestor with chimps mm -hmm. like you know, a million years ago or whatever. Yeah. And I feel like I really do when I'm in another country and I'm in a place where I'm uncomfortable, like, or if I'm in the outdoors, that's where I'm I feel extinct. like I'm thriving and I feel like that's kind of the animal side of ourselves putting yourself in a situation where you're uncomfortable yeah. and working through it and figuring it out but yeah I love I'm, it. I'm always scared to go down the rabbit hole of primate primate biology and stuff and humans because a lot of people have you know, their own beliefs about the origins of humans but when I when I look at humans as a whole I'm like we're a bunch of very confused great apes that 100%. Don't accept. Don't accept who we are at very biological level. <laughs> but I don't want to offend anybody that has their own, you know, beliefs of various sorts. Well, we are primates. We are. I mean, we are, we are, we are objectively but we are, primate. Yeah, a lot of people don't. We are don't like sapiens, so we are yeah. related to primates. Yeah. It doesn't matter how we got right. here. It doesn't matter if we were put on the planet by yeah. some larger force. Yeah. We're still close to primates. You can look at we our hands. Animals. Yeah. Look, at, look at your hands when you go to the zoo next time and look at a bonobo's hands or a chimp's yeah. hands. Or, yeah. You can't say that we're, we're, dis, we're not related to them. You know, it's, yeah. You're just lying to yourself. Yeah. I, I find it really fascinating to watch so like cool. dating and like social interaction like that because I'm like, it, it is so similar to primates, man. Like how, like, and, and just, I, I've always been, this is like a soft spot in my heart, but I've always been very into, um, like in mammalogy, like mating systems and things like yeah. that, societal structures, because species wide, they're so similar, but they're so vastly different. Like there are so many different types of courtship rituals and, and things yeah. like that. And like, um, I don't know. I just, I just find humans fit into that so nicely. We are primates. I mean, we're just, yeah. we're, we're a bunch of confused little animals just running around, just trying to survive and reproduce. That's all the thing wants to do. Survive and reproduce. A, all humans a, survive and reproduce. We're a phenomenal species because we're having this conversation. We're having this conversation right now. We're having this conversation and, you know, there was a time when our ancestors were living much like chips, you know, mm -hmm. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I wish I need to know. I need to learn more about anthropology. It's so fascinating and, and primate evolution. So yeah. Cool. All right, we can I move just, away from primates and you have anything else to say about Indonesia? They have some great food. They got yeah. tempeh, they got tofu, they've got some really yeah. nice soy products. That's all I have to say. Do you see any other wildlife there aside from the primates? Oh yeah. So I saw some actually some pit vipers, some like yeah. endangered um very poisonous vipers that I don't remember. I, what I looked it up. Were. I can't remember what they were called. You remember you telling me about that. I see. I, I, you sent me the picture and I, I uploaded it to iNaturalist and I yeah. figured it out, but I can't remember it now. Um, yeah. I'm, oh my gosh. I saw like, I, I, there's such an abundance of wildlife there. I do get a little bit confused on where I've seen wildlife. So I've seen howler monkeys and I know I've seen them in Costa that, Rica. That I was don't in Costa Rica. That was in Costa Rica. I saw proboscis monkeys in Indonesia. The big that's giant. Be Indonesia. Yes, yeah. that's Indonesia. I get yeah. I get mixed up because I'm mm -hmm. like looking into a tree, and in my my picture of my memory, I'm like, where was that tree? Was that tree in Costa Rica? Was that yeah. tree in Indonesia? Did you hear howler monkeys calling? Oh yeah, they're oh, so yeah. loud and creepy. I love it. When mm -hmm. I was in Belize, we would hear them. One night, we heard them like all night. And they sounded like like monsters in the forest. You know, they're it was neat. Yeah. I never got to see one. Yeah, they're yeah. just I heard they're yeah. They're, I saw a lot of sloths in Costa Rica as well. And that's really cool. I'd like to take a moment to say two-toed sloth is objectively cuter than three-toed sloth. Oh, so much cuter. Yeah, they got the bigger like eyes and oh, the little wet pink nose. Pink nose, yeah. So cute. So, the are just creepy. They've got the masks on and they're in all those real creepy memes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wish we saw a giant sloth around. Like some of the sloths that existed like, in the places, they're, they're like the size of an elk, like a rhinoceros or something. Like huge. Yeah, you would be okay with a giant sloth walking up to you? <laughs> I don't know. It'd be, be quite a sight to behold. I feel like we have some humans that resemble uh, giant sloths. Right. We have humans that, that resemble. Uh, neanderthals or neanderthals yeah if you were an animal what what animal do you think that you're most like what animal do you think that not even just resemblance but just like personality wise well i mean resemblance can help i i definitely have a strong resemblance to my animal what, you, what are you i'm a rabbit a rabbit <laughs> i'm definitely Why? a rabbit too. i'm easily distracted i eat all vegetables um i'm just like everywhere i'm just like a little bit like you know rabbits are kind of and you know, rabbits are just kind of like lame. Like, like, you know, like rabbits, nobody looks at a rabbit and they're like, oh man, that animal's badass. Yeah, nobody looks at me and they're like, oh, she's a badass. She'll be <laughs> no. Um and I've got very large blue eyes. Like a little blue rabbit eye. teeth. <laughs> yeah. Rabbit teeth. I was gonna say bug teeth, but I felt like it's kind of mean. It's true. No, I do. I have very large front teeth. They work out. They work out. I'm a bunny. Um, I don't know what I would be. What do you never thought about this? Well, you should think about it. I'm thinking right now. Put me on the spot. <laughs> My last guest asked me what turtle I would be and what snake I would be. And I had very quick answers to that. But this well, is more broad. What snake would you, I mean, uh, you'd probably Terrapin, be part of that. And mud, Terrapin and mud snake. I just came up with those on the fly because they're both cool. I think well, an animal. Cool. I mean, I, I don't, I think that you would be a. You gotta be a. A bird. It's gotta be a bird. You're a bird. You gotta fly. You gotta fly. Soar like an eagle. 
No, it's not what you want to be. It's what you think that you most resemble. Oh, your, I'm sorry. Like what My your last guest asked me what I wanted to be, what I would be. No. Yeah, you're no, saying you don't get to choose. I, I didn't choose that I wanted I to have it. I just like, am one. This is more objective. What am I most like? Yeah. I, I spent a lot of time in wetlands. Yeah, so you'd probably be a wetlands animal. Wetland critter. Mm-hmm. Your diet depends. Like, if you're not vegetarian, <laughs> you're not going to be an herbivore. Yeah. Omnivore, some sort. I don't know. I want to say like crocodile, but they're obligate carnivores. Like they don't need anything else. But I love crocodiles, but I'm not much like a crocodile. I'm going to have to think on it. We're going to have to move on or else we'll be get bogged down on this for a while. Yeah, I know. Nobody wants to listen to you decide what animal you are. I know, it's kind of boring. This is way too serious for me. I have to to find the very, very right animal. You already had a predetermined answer. Oh, I've known this for a long time, but it's not a good answer. Nobody wants to be a rabbit. I can't just throw something out there and, yeah. But here's my challenge to you, listeners. What animal are you really? (laughs) Not what you want to be. And do not use the term spirit animal because it's not a spirit spirit animal. animal. That is... That is a cultural thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just what, what animal do you vibe with? What animal do you yeah. feel like you're most like? Let us know in the comments. No, very, very pressing question. I'll have to figure okay. it out later. All right. We're at almost two hours. You thought you, you thought we couldn't go for two hours. Here uh, we are almost two hours in. I thought I would go. Uh, <laughs> Jester King. We can talk about Jester King. You have your weekend hustle. I do. So I'm a little uh, goat shepherdess at Jester yeah. King. We've got a nice little herd of about 53 Nigerian dwarf goats. Um, mm-hmm. I love them. They're my children. And I've been doing it for about a year and a half now. Yep. Almost coming up on two years, probably in May. Yep. Yeah. Man, it's been a while. Yep. So Jester King Brewery is a very cool little brewery out in Dripping Springs, Texas. Um, we aim to be very sustainable in everything that we do. So in our beer production, in our kitchen, in our, you know, land management as a whole, um, we have about 200 acres. So we started with just the brewery and then the land behind us was pristine hill country that they were going to turn into about an 80 home development and just Mm -hmm. no, don't tear it down. We want it. And that so area is land. getting a lot of development right now too. It's really sad. Yeah, we purchased it. It's good to hear. Know what to do with it, so we just graze goats on it. Um, nice. But we take them out to graze in the morning and in the evening for about ninety minutes each, um, and they take down all of the ash juniper, which is what gives everybody cedar fever here in Austin. Um, so they love juniper. They love ash juniper. We think it's like a little bit of a kind of like a tums on their stomach because they eat a lot of like sweeter stuff. Um, but they take down, I mean, they'll really eat anything and they take down the invasive species like agarita grass and stuff like that. Um, so they've got a four chambered stomach, they're ruminants just like cows. So they ferment it about four times in their gut. Um, they, they'll chew the cud just like cows do, always chewing on something. Um, and then all of their poop is what we use to fertilize our crops. And we just harvested our second legal growing season of hemp in Texas, which was very cool. Um, so hemp grows very successfully out at Jester King as well. Um, not super into the hemp farming like personally i don't do a lot for it other than the goat poop um that's that's the job of what's the job of farmer peppy farmer peppy farmer peppy, you, peppy. <laughs> the, hemp, the main hemp farmer right yes he is yes and he is goat dad goat dad um so i've been out to i went to jester king that one time and it is a very nice 
savannah ecosystem. Yeah. Those goats do a good job of keeping woody plant encroachment down and promoting native grasses because they don't eat as much of the grasses anyhow. Besides its grama. Well, they eat side its grama, but they do, yeah. I mean they they'll eat a, a lot of stuff. Y'all graze, y'all graze them on a um like on a very strict schedule and it it's mm-hmm. like a it's a very, very well managed piece of property for savannah grasses and yeah, I mean, we haven't done prescribed burn or anything like that. That's been on our list of something. Yeah, um, grazing, you know, that that's a good yeah. enough service for some properties, I would imagine. Well, we do have about, we have a lot of land, about about 200 acres and only 53 goats. We oh, could, that we is could a lot of land. Yeah. So there's, there's a small section where they keep managed, but the oh, rest is kind of like, nature trail out there that goes, okay. um, their little hooves help till the soil for it. So yeah. they, Just, they do a pretty good job of of that as well yeah and they're very cute people love to take pictures with them and pet them and they yeah. all have names that's everybody yeah. asks me their names um i can go into the nerdy science stuff about goats if you want but goats aren't really wildlife they're livestock so they are livestock what is the origin of dwarf goats do you know the origin of, i mean they obviously they came from nigeria, nigeria. yeah from so nigeria. i mean i think they they're do they have like do they have a wild they gotta have a wild ancestor, obviously, right? So, so it's like, or, like similar to dogs. So you have the domestic dog species, you have the domestic but, species, and Nigerian dwarf. But I wonder what they're like. So, like with a dog, when you look at a wolf, and that's what they looked like prior to domestication. I wonder what the goat, the Nigerian dwarf goat's ancestor looks like in its natural I state. I don't know. I always, I always wonder these things. Um, probably terrifying. Right. <laughs> probably not as cute, huh? Uh. Uh-uh. Uh, very cute so if you ever come out to Jester King Brewery in Dripping Springs Texas let me know and yeah. I will let you come hang out with goats and graze with us goat, goat yoga every now and then right yeah sometimes yeah. we do I'm not interested but people might be <laughs> I don't like goats and I don't like yoga so you don't like goats I, I told you this I had to used to scream oh, yeah. shit, goat shit every day <laughs> when I worked at Crocodile Encounter I mean, I have to say, so, I have this natural bias against the goats because they, uh, they're cute. I'll admit, so the babies are cute, but they're yeah. like all my babies. I love them. <laughs> they're wonderful. Well, you can imagine too. I'm like this gung ho croc dude going to work with crocs, and then I'm out there scooping yeah. goat shit at the croc park. Yeah, uh, I'm like no, this is not what I signed up for. <laughs> but that's part of the job, you know. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got to do everything. They have a they have a guard dog named Sasha as well. Oh, yeah. Um, so we have coyotes and um, bobcats and all that in the area as well. And we've never had any issues with predation because we have an Anatolian Shepherd Pyrenees mix named Sasha, who is a badass little mama, who is <laughs> out there with them all the time, twenty four seven in the barn with them, and um, huge advocate for livestock guard dogs. They're incredibly effective and very sweet. Yeah. Working dogs. Working are dogs. They were bred for that purpose. Yeah, she's only about two years old. She's been there the whole time too, and we really didn't have to do a lot of training. I mean, she's individual. And you see a like a you know duck hunt stuff, and we see a lab, you know, retrieving ducks that they've been trained to do this, and it's in their it's in their DNA to do it. They're so happy. They're tail wagging the whole time. They gunshots are going off, and they're zeroed in. Like, where's the duck going in? And they run out there and grab it. So I have a border collie. Working dogs are working dogs are really fascinating too. Yeah, I have a border collie named Banksy, and I actually got her from a cattle ranch up in Oklahoma. And I have the opposite thing. I'm like, you are so happy hurting things, but I am not. Please stop hurting things. So I wanted to play soccer. 
to get out her little herding instincts. And then our, my parents' dog, Moxie, is a Britney Spaniel. So she is technically a bird dog, but yep. not. <laughs> She's a diva. So aspirations. Any aspirations you want to mention in your, for your career in conservation or? I really like where I'm at. I really, I I feel like I fell into this position that's kind of perfect for me. Um, But I am coming up on a year in January. Um, So, I mean, I definitely have career goals to achieve more and do more. I mean, my first year was kind of a whirlwind, like figuring out all the programs and and all of that. Um, So I'm really excited. I really would like to, we're accepting new applications for our conservation wrangler projects. Um, so I'll, I'll send out a link so you guys can look if you're interested, but we really are looking for science-based projects to support and provide support for. And I'm so personally interested in DEI and conservation. So something with like recoloring the outdoors, um, just involving people of color in the outdoors, I, I find phenomenally important because when you look at the statistics, it's insane how many people are not utilizing resources and enjoying the outdoors because it's not culturally a thing for them. It's just not a norm. Um, So I'm, I'm very interested in that. And then also look into um, outdoor Afro. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, we we do, and uh, Black Outside as well. Okay. One one company that I really would like to work with. Um, And um, just conservation and agriculture as well. I am so interested in that and really want to work with. I mean, obviously, I love wildlife, and I've loved working with the projects that I work with. But um, conservation and agriculture is another passion of mine, and anything wildlife related. If you got a project, let me know. um yeah so I I love texting by nature and just really I guess those are my aspirations just to to include more people in enjoying the outdoors and conservation just people of different backgrounds people of different you know because people that do agriculture don't have the same backgrounds and the same education as people that are doing wildlife and doing um, forestry and things like that, but they're also very interested in conservation because their business depends on it. So looping them in is so important as well. Um, and then my, my background with Jester King is kind of a little bit agriculture focused as well. Um, I guess more ranching. Sustainable agriculture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just, you know, just promoting the importance of that, um, personal aspirations. I would love to have land and goats of my own. (laughs) Um, my goats live at Chester King right now. So yeah. that's, you know. That's Anything else you want to add about Texan by Nature for people that are interested in learning about it or? Yeah, if you guys are interested, um, texanbynature.org or .com. I should probably know. I think it's .org. You'll find it either way. Just look up Texan by Nature and you'll find yeah, it. Like um, yeah, so reach out if you have, we also do certifications. Um, so if you have like, a pollinator garden or something that you're doing in conservation and you would like a certification, the Jester King nature trail, for example, is certified. Um, we have pollinator gardens that are certified and things like that. Send us an email. The application is always open and we're happy to certify your things. You can get, um, in our newsletter on our social media and, um, we give you signs as well. You can put up a sign that say, says Texan by nature certified. Um, so there's, there's a lot of benefits to it. Um, we do memberships as well. If you're interested in keeping up with us and what we're doing um, in uniting business and conservation, 
it is an uphill battle and we appreciate everybody's support. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we really do a lot. Um, so Texan by nature, look us up, yeah. email me, Kinsey at texanbynature.org. If you have any questions about Texan by nature, or you want to get involved in any way. Um, I would love to hear from you guys. Very good. All right. Well, it was, uh, great to have you on Kinsey. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much for, for I feel coming. like I could probably have talked for another two hours. I think we, we've random. probably got another hour in us, but. I know. Uh, we'll do a second episode, Kinsey, part episode. two. The things we forgot in the first one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, take it easy. Till next time. Bye, everyone. See you.